The CrimeWire Podcast. Welcome to the CrimeWire Podcast. We are editors for the CrimeWire.com website. My name is Damon. I'm Jake. And we're going to talk about some uh, true crime cases right now. Uh, a little bit about the Crime Wire. We are a crime writing community for digital sleuths, armchair detectives, and future mind hunters. Makes us sound like a secret government agency or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, we like to work with authors who contribute articles to our website, and hopefully we can solve some crimes along the way. So let's start with the first case, Jake. What do you have for us? There's so many crazy cases going on right now. I mean, this has been a very bizarre year in true crime. A lot of very high-profile cases have taken very unexpected turns. And one of those is is definitely the Delphi case, uh, the Delphi, Indiana, and the two girls killed there. And it, it was already just an absolutely strange, bizarre case that it appeared to have been a, a you know crime of opportunity by this guy Richard Allen at least that's what the prosecutors are, are charging they're charging this guy Richard Allen and uh, the evidence they have linked to him is a, a gunshot casing that was found at the crime scene that could be traced to, to a gun he owns uh, but at the same time the, we, we don't know what the cause of death was we don't want, know what the murder weapon was and According to an extremely bizarre motion filed by the defense a couple weeks ago, which kind of started this just calamitous descent into chaos, which is where the case is now, uh, they filed this motion uh, alleging this very um, elaborate and vast religious cult conspiracy of the Odinists. And if you're asking, what that is, the Odinists, uh, congratulations, I, I didn't know either. It, apparently it is a Nordic pagan style religion that was appropriated by kind of these white nationalist groups in North America. And so when you say Odinist... Odin is a Norse god, right? Right, Odin, yeah, I don't know what the, the specifics of the Odin, I'm sure it revolves around Odin somehow, but anyway, the... The point is they, they they filed this motion basically saying that there was a the girls, Libby and Abby, were uh, victims of a religious cult sacrifice. And they uh, released uh, all these very provocative details detailing the crime scene, uh, which had, had never been publicly released, and uh, further even claiming that the law enforcement community there uh, is in on the cover-up. Uh, and, they, and it goes on. It, it was a very elaborate filing. But uh, now what has happened is apparently someone in the office of the defense counsel leaked crime scene photos, like actual crime scene photos. I don't think they've been circulated widely online, fortunately. And then the big thing that happened yesterday was his defense attorneys, Richard Allen, told the judge that they were stepping away from the case, that they were not going to represent Allen anymore. So he doesn't have counsel right now. And so basically no one really knows what's going on or why why they assume it's connected to the leak, because that's a pretty pretty big thing. 
you know, but did they do it to try and get a mistrial? Did they, they find out that Richard Allen did do it? Who knows? We, we don't know what's going on. It's a very strange place for that case to be at. Um, and it's really sad for the families involved. For sure. Now, here's a theory of mine. You can tell me what you think of it. Um, this has nothing to do with a theory of the case, nor a theory about conspiracies, other than it sounds like the mentality behind dropping this bombshell legal theory into their case was almost following the the lead of a certain former president who just seems to be creating chaos at all of his court hearings all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if these attorneys saw that as a, if they were inspired by that as something that, you know, this case is a loser. What can we do to just like blow it up? Yeah. A lot of people thought that it was a kind of Hail Mary that they did to try and muddy things up to try and, I mean, if if on if online reactions or any indication, it, it definitely worked in terms of making some people, because there is a percentage of people that are just uh, you know inherently oriented towards a more conspiratorial perception of things, and so they immediately latched onto this and started trying to corroborate it, uh, finding even uh, people were talking about how some kid was the the boyfriend. Of one of the victims and then his dad they found social media posts this kid's dad making po- like o- <laughs> odinist I, I get I, it's just so weird that odinist has suddenly become such a like big word that we're saying but he's the, <laughs> he was a member of odinist he made some he did make some creepy posts but we, we have no idea if this guy is, is in any way connected i mean it, it certainly seems like it was a crime of opportunity for a predator who was already out there I don't know how these girls were dropped off to go on a hike. They, they went on a hike. I don't think it was planned necessarily in a big way beforehand. So I don't know how a huge conspiracy would have coordinated to get there. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. As for why they did it, yeah, I mean, there's some parallels. Like if you create enough chaos, you can sometimes affect the way people are talking about a case, which can then affect possibly the jury or witnesses. And if it if it gets crazy enough, as in this case, it can blow up the, everything uh, and, and cause hopefully not a mistrial. But yeah, I mean, that is a strategy that can be deployed. I'm not really sure why they, they're, they would do that for Richard Allen, though. It's not like he's some incredibly like rich celebrity. You know, so not, they can't be doing it for money. Unless it's high profile and it- right, it is high profile, but it's past tense now because now they're stepping down. So it's just it's just bizarre. I don't know. I don't know what else to say about it. The stepping down part is the weird part to me. Like if they came up with this whole big blustery legal strategy and then they leave, what was the point? Yeah, I mean, uh, my my guess is, I mean, if they're really loyal to Richard Allen, I don't know why. I mean, I guess because they're supposed to defend him. You know, that's, that's part their of, job. Yeah. That, that, that's their job. It's part of the whole equation that is so always so mysterious to me. Uh, defense lawyers and what they know, how much they know. You know, some of them, it seems like they want to know right off the bat if their client did it. Other times they seem to not want to know. And maybe, maybe what happened was they found out that he did do it and got mad at him for lying and so decided to step down. But I don't, I mean, surely they had the sense to not believe this Odinist conspiracy was like the most logical one, but they're, you know, they're trying to get reasonable doubt, you know, can you, right. can you establish a reasonable doubt? 
which is like, I, 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 there's no nothing written down exclusively about like what that is, reasonable doubt, but off the record, judges and legal scholars have said it's somewhere between like 95% and 98% sure, which is, you know, that's a pretty high degree of likelihood, you know, but it's not a hundred percent. It's never 100%. Right. That one's just sad because they spent so much. I mean, there was so much pressure on law enforcement. The community there suffered. I mean, they, they did this whole campaign where they, the town members there in Delphi, they were, they were turning on their certain light on their porch, a certain color for the, for the children. I mean, they were really in, solidarity there and it's just so sad it's just i mean it was already so tragic because you know these girls were so i mean the the older girl was so uh brave and smart in what she did and in getting a recording both uh visual and audio of what was happening you know probably not fully sure what was going on but uh, assuredly terrified knowing you know this something is is not right here had the sense of mind to it and it's just, it's sad that out of you know those two things you know that we weren't able to get you know a better better look at the killer but there is that one picture of him on the bridge i'm sure you've seen that one yeah i was going to ask you about that that's did they determine that that is actually alan i mean they don't know if it's alan um but it, it, they think it's the killer whoever the killer is but mm-hmm. they i don't think they can tell i don't think the fidelity of the image is is good enough to confirm an identity unfortunately it's crazy that we don't have that yet given that you know what's this new satellite in space that like literally can like look down and see anything that's happening on the ground and in fairly good detail i don't know why we can't get better better surveillance cameras i guess right so what what's your takeaway from this case right now because it sounds like it's still pretty chaotic yeah, I mean, I think you may be right. I think that the defense attorneys, they they kind of use the conspiratorial um, trigger that, that is popular right now. And they, they tapped into this kind of folk horror obsession in, in, in horror movies. You see it where this idea of the primeval archetypes coming out in, in, in an untamed rural setting. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, so you get these pagan groups wearing masks and performing cult ceremonies and whatnot. The folk horror component traces back to the satanic panic. Uh, there's always this kind of uh, reflexive fear of non-Christian cult exercise going on out in, in the woods. Uh, even though religious cult killings are fairly rare, pretty rare. I mean, opportunistic killings by strangers are actually rare. Most, most most killings are done by you know someone who's close to the person, whether family or friend. We're already talking about outlier cases, and then religious cult killing. I mean, that's as outlier as you can get. Is that as likely as just some dude that is a really bad, horrible person was out there and saw them and followed them? That's what it looks like happened to me. Uh, and they have a, a casing that they can trace to him. Uh, sounds like the witness testimony it, it isn't going great, but who knows? I don't know what's going to happen. He's, it's, he seems more likely than not to be the, the prime suspect, at least. And uh, hopefully the case, I mean, I think at this point, we're just hoping people have to hope the case uh, doesn't get declared a mistrial. Based on everything you're saying right now, it sounds like they don't have any DNA or anything connecting him? Yeah, they don't have DNA. They don't have forensic evidence. 
most cases don't have forensic. You don't have to have forensic evidence. Well, actually, I mean, ballistic evidence, it's not DNA, but it's, it's irrefutable. It's an irrefutable connection. I mean, Richard Allen is directly connected to the crime scene. Mm-hmm. Um, from the conspiracy side, I mean, they would ask, I mean, how hard would it be to get one of Richard Allen's casings after he went hunting and deposited at the crime scene? I guess, I guess that is another thing to look at and stranger things have always happened. So it could, that could turn out to be the case also. Who knows? Well, why don't we return to this uh, on the next episode? Cause I'm sure there's going to be plenty of new updates. Sounds like a plan. Right for the crime wire. Email crimewireteam at gmail.com for more information. You also wanted to talk about uh, the Natalie Holloway case. As we record this, some breaking news just happened within the last two days or so. Yeah, I mean, the biggest news that a case can get. A person finally confessed, uh, Joran Vandersloot. Everyone was very sure he did it, but they had no strong evidence. You know, they couldn't place him there. They didn't have anything forensic, nothing like that. He finally confessed. And uh, that case is kind of a mess, too, because, you know, the Aruban authorities let this guy. I mean, they, it doesn't really seem like they went to town trying to nail this guy. And then he went on to Lima, Peru, and killed another young woman, 21-year-old woman there. He was arrested for that one and imprisoned for that one. So he's been in custody for a while, but in Peru. And... Uh, what happened in this long extradition battle that's been going on to try and get him here because he was involved in an extortion plot. When I tell you who the victim of the extortion plot is, it's, that's what makes the case that much more incomprehensible. He was extorting Beth Holloway, Natalie Holloway's mother, the victim's mother. So this guy kills a young woman and then extorts her mother with what he claimed was proof of what happened to her and where she was, which of course turned out to be completely made up. Uh, And so they busted him for that. And then they made as one of the conditions of a guilty plea for that crime was that he had to confess and say what actually happened. And, you know, there are people that are skeptical of the confession since he already gave a fake one, right? No, he didn't give a fake confession. Well, in the extortion uh, case, he just gave bogus information to the mother, didn't he? He gave bogus information, but I don't think he was telling her that he did it. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think he was saying, I did it. I think he was saying he knows what happened. And I'm sure the mother suspected and in and, and her mind knew and did know that he did it. But, you know, in her mind, she's, she's a mom. She's just trying to get the truth of what happened. So she was like, okay, this guy is a, you know, psychotic scumbag, but if he, if he knows something about what happened, it's worth it to try and get this information. Or perhaps she was smart enough that she was, you know, entangling him in, in, in a, in what she knew could be a legal trap. And I haven't read into her side of it enough to know, but I I really think she just thought that this, she was going to find out what happened, but he wasn't telling her what actually happened. That that only happened a few days ago. It was part of his, he had to say it in court in a guilty plea and then a transcription of it came out. And it's, you know, if we assume it's true, if we take it that it's true, it's, it's, it's like 
the banality of evil incarnate. It's what anyone could have imagined happening is what started it off, which is that he essentially was making extremely aggressive, inappropriate advances toward her, and she rejected him and even need him in the groin, which is a detail of the story that it just shows that she was you know, standing up for herself and should have been an awesome moment, but because he is just is, is pathetic and psychotic, pathetic and psychotic as he is, he kicked her. And then when she was unconscious, he, you know, smashed her head in with a cinder block. And that's, that's what's in the court transcript. And it's, it's really, uh, it's just incomprehensible really, but it's what happens, what he says happened. And, you know, that doesn't exactly make him look good. So these people saying that he made it up, like, what is he, what perception is he gaining there from, you know, he, he, he's confessing to smashing her face in literally with a, with a cinder block, picking her body up, putting it in the ocean and sending her off to sea. Um, like, you know, some alternate universe horror movie of, of a send off of someone, you know? Hmm. And so, so what is he like, what was the real thing that happened? It was even worse than that, that he's lying about, you know, that's, I don't really get, I could buy that he's misrepresenting how it led up to that. Uh, you know, the, the actions he was taking, I could see him sugarcoating that, but um, it doesn't get much more brutal than what he did to her. And so I think we have to assume it's, it's at least pretty close to the truth, but you know, the, the silver lining for, you know, Beth Holloway, the mom is she, she views it as a huge victory. She views her daughter as getting justice and I, I guess that's what we have to take from it. Yeah, I was reading some uh, some of her statements after the the announcement, and yeah, you're right. She just seems to be sort of wanting to put this to bed once and for all. You know, you can't go back and change what happened. And she's been living with this for how many years now? Two two thousand five. It's two thousand five. Yeah. So yeah, going on twenty years. So. What about the people you just described? Now, I saw some footage from back in the day when, when she was still over in Aruba and still investigating it, and it sounds like the, the residents sort of turned on her. I don't know about that. I think it was just because uh, the two accomplices, or at least the two guys who were driving, the brothers who were driving mm-hmm. him around, they were being released because I guess the law of Aruba was that you can only hold people for so long before you you know you have to let them go if you don't charge them with anything. And then uh, they, I think they did the same thing with him, with Yorn, I think is how you, how I saw it pronounced. <laughs> oh, is that it? It's Yorn? Okay. I think so. Not Joran. All right. <laughs> yeah, but don't feel bad because I heard in this one single report, I heard it pronounced four different ways. <laughs> so I, the one that, that everyone kept landing on was Yorn. So I'm just going to go with that. Well, but can, the- you, can you edit in me saying Yorn? Oh. <laughs> um, you know, it just seemed like at one point the mom was when they they were releasing these guys, she sort of pushed back a little bit. From what I read, Aruba is just sort of a territory of, it's a Dutch territory, I believe. Uh And so I think the residents got pretty defensive of not only the laws of their island and their home, but also that I guess that kid is Dutch, right? So their their special boy Yorn, who yeah. is just such a wonderful young man, right? And so they just kind of turned on her and said, you know, Americans go home and all this stuff. So she had to go through a lot of st- a lot of things. Oh, I, I guess my original point was, 
those same people, I wonder, A, I wonder how they feel now. Because they said, you know, Yorn is innocent. They're carrying placards around and saying, let him go. He's innocent. Innocent until proven guilty and all this stuff. When it was pretty clear, like, something was going on with that guy. Like, well, yeah. Especially after he was convicted of murdering another one. Yeah. Maybe rethink your take on the whole, on the kid. Uh, now I'm twisting and turning this entire conversation. But going back to what you originally said, are there people right now who are saying there's something wrong with his confession and maybe he still didn't do it? Are they still saying they don't think he did it? Is that where we stand with these people right now? I'm sure there's, I mean, some people will, or will never give, give up on their theory of the case. I'm sure there's a few, but I mean, I would say most people at this point are probably, I don't think Jorn Vandersloot has that many hardcore supporters left. I mean, one would hope not at least, but I'm, I'm sure there's people writing love letters to him right now as I speak. Oh yeah, he he'll be married before the year's out. I bet. Yeah, he's well. If he is, he'll be doing it in Peru, a Peruvian prison, because that's where he's he's now headed back. You know, he's jet setting around the world just for his murder criminal trials. What a jet setter! But he's now he's going back to Peru now. He's going to serve like I think it's, he has twenty years left of his prison sentence there for murder, and then at that point he would be returned. Think to the U.S. to uh, for for whatever charges on the extortion case. On the extortion case, and, and then after that comes the because he admitted to the murder. I think he then has to do another twenty after that. I, I don't know how that's going to work. I know I, I just know that Aruba has a twelve-year statute of limitations. So I don't think that they can charge him with murder. And that's what a lot of people are upset with right now. What's weird is I read, uh, this is a very convoluted case. And so I'm thinking back to what I read earlier. And he also was doing some sort of cocaine trafficking from within prison, which added another 18 years. to. to Oh, yeah. So this guy is not a good guy we're talking about here. And and, uh, he's almost like uh, sociopathic or something, you know? Yeah. Can't keep out of trouble. And uh, I guess my takeaway is like, I don't care where he does the time, and as long as he's doing time and not out killing other women, that's that's I'm okay with that. Absolutely, I'm of course I'm I'm trying to find out what's going to happen to him after that sentence. Um, part of this plea is I, I I mean the mother doesn't seem to think there's going to be prosecution of him for the for the Natalie Holloway's murder. She seems to you know come to terms with that, at peace with it. Um, so uh, I think what's next is just this guy rotting in prison for a while. Yeah, I, I'm looking up something right now and it says this week, which is the you know third week of October 2023, the confession, so to speak, was part of a plea deal on his extortion charges from 2010. Mm-hmm. So I guess once it says here, once he's, oh man, this is, this is not looking good because it says... The judge sentenced him to 20 years on the extortion charges, cool, which will run concurrently with his existing Peru sentence. So he's serving two sentences, not consecutively, but concurrently. Does that mean he's going to get released in Peru eventually and just kind of wander the planet again like he has been? Hope not. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to say about the uh, Holloway case or you just want to keep keep an eye on that? Because I, I guess at this point, we're, he's just going to what reveal more details that he hasn't revealed yet. Because that's what I heard is that she she didn't have the full story from him yet. It was just she had agreed for this to happen, that he would divulge the, the details of the crime. So I guess the only thing we're going to hear next is like actually what those details were. 
And then he's back off to Peru to finish serving whatever time he has left on that sentence. And boy, I hope he doesn't get out after that. I, you know, I hope he tries to do another cocaine ring or something. So he, he gets another 20 years added to his, to his sentence. Cause I just don't like the idea of that guy walking around. No, I don't think anyone does. All right. Well, both of those cases are featured on the crime wire. That's the crimewire.com. And also we encourage authors to submit articles for review and possible inclusion on the crime wire. You can email us at crimewireteam at gmail.com and Jake or I will uh, will get back to you and also poke around on the crime wire. See how articles are written. You can see some of our more popular authors, uh, how they kind of format their articles. They're basically magazine style investigative pieces. And, and, you know, we'd love to hear from you and see what kind of case you'd like to write about for us. The Crime Wire. Solving crime. One article at a time. Those are two breaking news cases. I wanted to talk quickly about this one because we do like our vintage cases on the Crime Wire. And this one is about, uh, did you have a chance to look at that, Jake? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the Bennington Triangle, which is a, a little region, a little area of, uh, of Vermont, written by our, one of our great authors, Michelle Short. Always does great research. And so this was a series of disappearances and uh, it looks like killings uh, in the in the years 1945 to 1950, and it all happened in the same little. As I said, it was called the Bennington Triangle area, which is uh, kind of a mountainous area, and some some towns. The Bennington is one of the towns locally, and then a few other ones. And it really just these five main cases, along with some other things that that had happened there, either further in the past or just kind of other random things. But the ones that are considered just part of this little mystery is uh, I'm just going to give you the thumbnail sketch of these disappearances. Mitty Rivers was a older gentleman, 74 year old guy. He was on a hunting trip and then he split from the guy he was hunting with, walked away and then was never seen again. And uh, that was in 1945. The next one that's probably the most well-known in this uh, little series of mysteries is Paula Weldon. And she took this little adventure where she wanted to go hiking, uh, asked some people at her college. She was 18 years old in the year uh, 1946. It's about a year after the first one. And wanted to go hiking, and none of her roommates or other college friends could go with her. So she just started hitchhiking out to the area, this one trail in particular, which I guess is part of this region. She was spotted by some people, either asking questions about where the trail was or, you know, fairly innocent stuff. And then she also vanished in 1946. Then we have James Tedford, who was 68 years old in 1949, a few years later. He got on a bus to go visit, I guess his wife was in a hospital or something, or hospice care or something, and went to go visit her. He was also having a lot of his own uh, medical issues, and he got on a bus to go visit his wife, was going home, talked to a few people, some bus drivers remembered him, and then he disappeared (laughs) in this area as well. A couple more here. Paul Jebson was a eight-year-old boy in 1950, and his mom took him out to this kind of dump area in the woodland area there. She went in to feed the pigs that were kind of housed in this this dump area where she was a caretaker and left eight-year-old Paul in the car. When she came back, like an hour later, he was gone. And of course, they searched for him, didn't find anything of the boy. Now, the the next one is also 1950. 
only a few weeks after Paul, a woman named Frida Langer was out with her husband and her cousin, and they were sort of camping and may have even been getting ready to do some hunting. And she was walking with her cousin and fell into some water, uh, a stream there or something, and then uh, told her cousin, I'm just going to run back to the camp and change into some dry clothes, and then I'll meet you back out here. She disappeared. Although later she was found. I'm going to say it was a a few years later. Or maybe it was only several months. Let me see. Uh, Seven months later, yes. So of those five mystery cases, Frida's was the only one that actually they they were able to find her body. But of course, it's a mystery what happened to her. They couldn't tell from doing an autopsy and everything. So... Before this, uh, local Native Americans avoided this area completely, and there was rumors that there was a big monster there, (laughs) the Bennington Monster, which is a big, hairy, black creature. And then, of course, following that, speaking of conspiracies, there's a lot of, you know, kind of like paranormal explanations for some of these things, like alien abductions and the usual, you know, rogues gallery of theories. What are your feelings when you hear about these older cases, Jake? And then there's really, they didn't, obviously didn't have the same sort of investigation techniques or, or technology back then. What are, what are, what's your feeling on stuff like this? I mean, it's hard to say because these are multiple cases. Uh, generally speaking, I think it's less likely to be a monster, obviously, <laughs> and more likely to be, you know, this, it kind of, this is an old case, but the kind of legends and urban myths that were generated then that, that still happens today. You know, we see it in a lot of cases where people go missing in national parks. You're always going to get these cryptid theories and UFO abduction theories. I mean, it's the most wild speculation I can imagine is, you know, there could have been a serial killer in the area, but uh, it's most likely going to be weather related. Reportedly this area experiences like pretty rapid changes you know good weather to like heavy winds and and rain and stuff so you know people get lost in the wilderness all the time and die Mm -hmm. back in 1945-50 it would have happened a lot without people even knowing fully ever what happened because they just didn't have the resources they didn't have search and rescue really at that time uh and so we don't have a lot of the details of the disappearances also um so it's it's certainly mysterious and, and eerie. I mean, there's no doubt about that. As you said, like you could point to any, you know, wilderness area or, or hiking area and kind of cobble together a theory over a period of time and go, well, these three things happen. Ergo, something mysterious is going on there. I guess you could do that anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you could chalk this one up to coincidence, but there's still the mystery of what happened, even if it was weather related. People want to know. Families want to know. It's got to be wildly frustrating for like, you know, on the Frida case where his wife was there one minute and gone the next minute and then they found her later. I mean, how whether it's just weird coincidences and weather related stuff and everything, it's still a bummer that the families have to kind of go through all that, you know? Yeah, it's it's horrifying to think that someone can just disappear yeah, there was another case that was on the site about a guy, I can't remember the, the name, but there was his wife just disappeared and uh, every people were walking with her in the forest and she just vanished. And uh, the police came to believe in that case that she, uh, that she had run off. That's a pretty typical thing that people will claim. I, I think it's more rare than foul play. Plenty of people that have wanted to get out of, you know, bad abusive relationships and uh, just took off, you know. Those ones always seem weird, though, because they don't contact their families ever again, you know? 
Well, yeah, you would think that they would contact their families, yeah. Yeah, thank you for listening to the Crime Wire podcast. This is our first episode and uh, first of many, we hope. And thanks for joining us. And uh, on behalf of Jake and myself, Damon, we will see you next time on the Crime Wire. This has been a production of thecrimewire.com.